0: I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. I've focused on youth and children in Kurdistan and Iraq in the past, uh, but oftentimes I frame this topic around education or the ability to access the job market for the next generation here. But I haven't actually framed the topic of children based around human rights. Uh, And so I think it's a good time to talk about children here based on their actual rights in Iraq and Kurdistan and the differences between the two uh, and how those rights are handled and oftentimes ignored. Normosa is an expert in this area. Her past work with Save the Children and her specialty with dealing with displaced and refugee children here gives her a lot of insight into a vast array of topics. Uh, So we get into all sorts of subjects here, including child imprisonment, uh, physical and sexual abuse of minors, uh, and the differences between girls and boys when it comes to growing up and the expectations placed on them. Specifically, we we get into uh, marriage uh, for young girls as well as uh, child recruitment uh, for uh, militias here. It's a long interview, uh, but it's very informative, and and Noor does an excellent job of breaking down some very difficult topics. So I'll just leave it at that. Here's Noor. All right. Well, Noor, thanks so much for meeting me this evening.
1: Hi. Thank you.
0: So I think the best place to start is, is last year, uh, the Kurdistan Regional Government uh, began with uh, an inclusion program for Syrian children. And this kind of creates a schism, a political schism, somewhat with the Iraqi government. And so I think that's the best place to go first to sort of describe what is going on, both with the rights of children here, but also the sort of the political schism between Iraq and Kurdistan.
1: Yes, exactly. I think this is a good example to reflect on. Uh, So what happened is, you know that... Uh, In 2020, we had the COVID crisis and education was stopped everywhere around the world. All too well. Yeah. (laughs) Syrian refugees also impacted by that. But then the year after Iraq was going through elections and then trying to figure out ways to ensure better elections or like people vote. Uh, So what has happened that the Iraqi government has announced uh, the closure of camps. Camps closure became something big which actually means that the humanitarian crisis and the humanitarian response in country has to end. Right. By the end of the year.
0: Well, the humanitarian crisis will continue.
1: <laughs> exactly. But it doesn't mean that will... <laughs> people and suffering is it's continuous, but it means like officially no camps, no suffering. Mm-hmm. Done. What happened yeah. to these people? Yeah. That, so what that meant is that the funding for education response for children in camps or in in settlements or in host communities had to stop. Uh, So the schools, the infrastructure, but then also the teachers you pay for to maintain these educational uh, organizations has to end. So the the way the Kurdish government uh, uh, founded it, like the best solution to do is to integrate these Syrian children within the Kurdish schools. Uh, However, Syrian children uh, have for the last 10 years or even more in the country been learning in their mother language, Mm -hmm. in Arabic, different language in Kurdish school. The system is a bit different. So there were two things here. One is that children became a bit limited with their options, not a bit, very limited with their options. Mm -hmm. There is only one option, one system that you can join now. Uh, Otherwise, you have to pay for private education not everybody can afford that most pe- most refugees cannot yeah, ref- yeah, exactly. yeah cannot afford that the second thing is meant that also that children had to pr- provide certain um, uh, legal ba- documents for example a graduation sec- certificate in order for them to register in a public education and many Syrian refugee children didn't have that paper with them mm-hmm. or actually when they want to go back to Syria they need to have an acknowledged education certificate and they are concerned that their education in a, in a Kurdish school wouldn't actually help them to continue their education where they are back. is a different system, different language.
0: Exactly. So being included in a Kurdish system will actually limit them in the long run if they're trying to go back to their host, yeah. co- to their home country.
1: And I know Syrian parents who were also saying that that also makes me unable to educate my children anymore because this is not the, what the, the system that I studied in, not the language I studied in. So I won't be, even though they speak Kurdish, but you know how Kurdish there are different accents and informal education. Oh, I'm aware. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, uh, I would assume that many Syrians wouldn't understand the formal Kurdish language that is used in the education mm-hmm. system here. So that also prevented uh, parents to in, like to be part of their children's education and support them with that.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately, organizations like, for example, UNHCR are beholden to the political motivations of, of you know, the governments that they're working in. Mm-hmm. And I would like to actually talk about. Going off of that, uh, this inclusion program and sort of, in general, uh, education, formal education for children, provides a lot of data sets, ways that we can figure out what exactly is going to happen with this next generation. Mm -hmm. And with, in Iraq, something that we talked about before we turned the microphones on, the dispelling of these camps uh, and and sort of the ending of uh, humanitarian aid is is basically doing away with a lot of these data sets. They're throwing them out the window. Mm -hmm. And so what is that going to mean? in Iraq versus Kurdistan?
1: I think one thing that the government themselves are struggling with is data. Uh, Mm. So we, we actually, as NGOs, when you go and ask the government which response you want, in which locations, they'll tell you like come in week or two weeks we'll try to get the numbers. They ask different organization, other international organization, if they have information on that location. So one thing it's like mostly impacted is the government. They don't really know who's benefiting their system, which locations, they don't have that uh, data by itself. I think that also, need to ref- that, thinking about this, we need to reflect about something that is actually, for me, is very confusing, and it's happening and confusing to people who work with the government or uh, in the government, is the centralization, decentralization approach mm. for governance. You, centrally, the government is responsible for salaries, employment, different things. But locally, uh, pe- the people who work in these offices for these ministries don't really actually have these tools to do the data, to process them, to send them to the ministry. And the ministry believe that this is the responsibility of these right. uh, uh, departments while the departments think not, know that ministry is responsible. So within the same uh, actor, there's this division, are we uh, central or decentral? Uh, so uh, when it comes to data, the minister would assume that we want the data. We just ask our office in that governorate while the office in that governorate is not resourced for. They don't have the the tools and the equipment. They don't have the numbers. Mm-hmm. And then information get lost.
0: Well, that's the issue with child rights here in general Was something you were saying uh, again before we uh, began this interview was the issue with child rights is it, it exists, but in a very sort of dispersed form. Uh, and so... There's no unified like child rights uh, legal system to go off of.
1: Yeah, I think many actors who've been working on children rights uh, in Iraq for years now, and and even people newly joining, to trying to understand what is happening, nobody has the full picture yet, because mm. the legal pl- for like the legal uh, scene is not clear. You don't really understand what are children's laws here, where they are distributed. Sometimes they are in different co- laws contradicting each other. And you have the national law and then you have the subnational standards, um, again, with centralization, de- decentralization. And then you don't have the understanding of actually how things should be governed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Once you have that you also have the issue with resourcing because you don't know how things should be and you don't have the understanding or actually you're confused about it. You know that there is something that should be this way, but then there's this other law or actually it's not there yet. So uh,
0: what what kinds of laws contradict one another? Give me an example. So
1: I was very surprised when I was in uh, Baghdad uh, meeting the juvenile office there. Uh, and they were saying... See, we don't understand why children, juvenile children, are still in the central prison in Basra. They should be here in Baghdad. Mm. But however, we also understand the part of the law that says a child should be uh, imprisoned in the nearest prison to their family. That's contradicting.
0: And then that also spreads sort of a, a larger amount of what already exists as a culture of skepticism towards the law in
1: general here. Yeah, if yeah. you don't understand, and then you just yeah, you're not sure how things should be.
0: And then there are large sections, exactly, and that's what you and you end up large pockets of cultural conversations that end up happening under the table, that exactly. the law isn't yeah. even considered.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, exactly.
0: So you brought up something actually that I want to get into uh, criminalization uh, mm-hmm. as a particular topic, and I want to talk about the difference between uh, the age that a child uh, can be charged as a criminal in Iraq versus Kurdistan, because there is a difference. Yes. Uh, so yeah.
1: So I actually, when I, I worked on this uh, focus for a while, and then I've always saw how the some Iraqi uh, government uh, personnels, people who worked uh, with juveniles, are very impressed with the progress Kurdistan have made. And when you ask them what is the progress, they say the criminal age for a child is a bit higher. So in Iraq is, is uh, 9, and in Kurdistan I think it's 11 or 13. However, both of the uh, minimal age uh, for criminalization do not meet the international standard. Mm. But then Kurdistan has made some progress. Nine is very low age for a child to be criminalized and then they have to go through a legal process.
0: Do they go through uh, a legal process and get put in a juvenile detention center or are they imprisoned with adults?
1: Not all governorates or not all uh, sub-governorates offices have uh, detention centers for children. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you have to put them either within the the same detention center where you have adults or you have to put them in, in facilities that are not actually... Uh, for this same ministry, same actor. So maybe you are a minister of interior, you have to d- detain this child, but then there's no safe pl- space for them. So you put them under a function, uh, under a, a place that is under a different government function and, and, and information could get lost in the way on mm-hmm. like what is happening with this child and the way they might transfer it. Um, that's a big challenge. Uh, I think also when I was in Basra, um there was this person from uh, a, set, a certain uh, neighborhood and who was saying, uh, like, so Basra has four areas and in all these four areas, w- within these four areas, there are different sub-districts that have also detention centers, but the only detention center is in the central city. So a child has to be driven to the, to the center. But sometimes, which is actually very disturbing to know, that sometimes the police, they don't have the cars to drive that child. Okay. Minimal resources. They don't have uh, a car to drive them today. So maybe the next day or the day after, they don't have the gas to drive their car. Mm -hmm. So the child is trapped in that location. And why do you take them to the central detention? Because then, then maybe they will be referred to the court and things has to be processed. Because legally, you have to process the whole thing in two days, mm-hmm. just for the, the the judge to decide what happens with this case. So you have but a d- then maybe the child is, is in in detention center for months or weeks.
0: Okay, so you have a child that's detained and potentially there's no record of them yeah. for like a long period of time. Yes. What can happen in that period of time?
1: Exactly. Yeah, Are the people who working in these facilities trained? What happens there? Maybe in some places they they are, but I'm I'm not really sure that they are. Ever, all of them are trained. And then, are these places equipped to be child friendly? Because a child friendly place is not only walls and a place to sit on. They need to have art supplies. They have. To, you need to see some sun. Uh, in the standards, a detention center where a child is, it has to be a. a time where a child is taking out to be exposed to the sun for a while and play.
0: Particularly like in a, prison, in a detention center, the idea is to separate them from society, rehabilitate them so that they can mm-hmm. become, you know, functioning members and productive members in society. Mm-hmm. For children, that's very important.
1: Yeah, exactly. And but then the place itself is not allowing them to do this. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, as I said, it's like there is this this time during the day where the child has to go out under the sun. It's healthy for them. It's a standard but then the the, the, uh, the facility doesn't offer that. Mm-hmm. And then how long this child is trapped, you don't know. Another thing that is also around this, but also in, in Iraq, not in Kurdistan, then the main uh, processing system uh, for these cases is in Baghdad. Mm. So the, the case has to be sent to Baghdad, not the person itself, but the case documents have to go in Baghdad and then processed, and then they have to. So all this bureaucracy leading to a child who has to be detained for a few days in order for the court to decide on their case, it might take them months. And, and think about the lost education. This everyday in a child life is important for their growth and future.
0: Well, to potentially leaving them in a very dangerous area. Yeah. Because these kids, if they're, if they're detained, and if they're detained, for example, in a, uh, a place that's not specific to kids, but for adults as well, what comes to my mind is that child could be put in the way of someone who's very predatory, for example, mm-hmm. and be de- being detained for that reason.
1: Yeah, and also another thing that is disturbing from what I heard from police in in Basra, people in Syrian positions and senior positions within the government in Basra, they were saying that a child goes to a prison for a drug crime, consumption, drug consumption crime. Mm -hmm. You know that drug crimes are really rapidly uh, growing in the country, even for children Mm -hmm. and girls too, which is very disturbing. But for a child to go be detained for a duck abuse crime to actually dealing. So within their time in the detention or in prison, they have been equipped with information or support system or resources to actually become not also a consumer but also a dealer.
0: So they've learned how to basically access a criminal system yeah. that they've theoretically been detained from yeah. even better,
1: and, and, and starting at the
0: age of nine potentially. Yeah.
1: And then a child might actually have a very minimal... Uh, a criminalization, uh, like a fee or, or period of detention to actually being extended further. And then they lost of their education and time because of just, they spent time in prison, not actually doing it in the street.
0: Mm-hmm. And actually to the point we brought up before, uh, I want to talk about uh, physical uh, abuse of children and the way that a child might be able to access care for that, because it's not entirely intuitive here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so going off of not just children who are imprisoned, who are abused, uh, but also children in school, in domestic situations who, who suffer from physical or sexual or psychological abuse, how do those kids access uh, uh, k- uh, like aid from like a public sector?
1: Yes, uh, just before this, I, wanna s- I wanted to also touch upon how uh, parents can be enabled to use physical abuse on their children. Mm-hmm. What are the factors that enable them? One is that domestic uh, violence by itself is not actually legally uh, is like legally addressed. So there is no national domestic violence law where the child see the mother reports and actually can actually uh, comes up with something out of it. Um, so that's happening. The legal ground for domestic violence in general for on women, men, and children. It's not there. Second, um, the economic situation. Okay. We know what happened with yeah. COVID. In Iraq, it was disturbing. They called it a phenomena, the Iraqi government, of violence against children. Kids were actually killed in horrific ways, in f- very short periods of time, like you hear stories on so, you know, social media, on children mainly mm-hmm. being killed. And that's mainly because the child is now deprived of education, of space to go out, connect with people. The family doesn't have uh, enough resources to support itself. They get angry, they abuse the child. Mm-hmm. Third, and I think it's very dangerous now, and it's, it's, it's growing uh, again, is the drug crimes in Iraq and the, the drug abuse, the spread widespread of drugs among uh, not only men, but also females, girls and boys, but then parents, parents who abuse drugs, and then you, you can see the consequences of that on children. Mm-hmm. Um, working with a child rights organization, there was this one thing, what this one line that I think is very important, I would want to say, that children are the least impactful, but yet the most impacted. They, don't really, they didn't impact the COVID crisis or the cathartic situation or the drug, drug users. They are the most impacted from all of that.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, they'll be the most impactful in a generation to come.
1: Exactly. Yeah. One day they would be impactful and then they've already expo- been exposed to lots of disturbing um, situations. But just to go back to your question around, so what happened with a child when they get be abused? Um, like common sense is you reported. Uh, if it's like uh, this very actually um, harsh abuse that is causing you lots of trouble, like physically and mentally, mm-hmm. you report it. Reporting mechanisms, um, I am an adult. I grew up in Iraq, and I have never know that, that there is a hotline for children to report in, and, and never had people coming to my school or to my university, ever, ever, or seen it on TV, to be mm-hmm. honest. So I'm, I'm not sure how children are aware there are hotlines, I haven't called the hotline. I don't know people who called it to know actually what kind of services they provide. They tell you there is a hotline, but you're not really actually sure what does that hotline provide you with. And, and if there are who's experts, up the phone. yeah, yeah exactly. who's picking up the phone? Yeah. Are they trained to talk to a child who is like experiencing violence mm. or actually maybe rape or something very disturbing? Yeah.
0: Well, and th- so you have, like, physical abuse that's yeah. more obvious in other forms. Like, yeah. for example, rape can be very hard to prove uh, in, in a legal situation, mm-hmm. uh, and not just in Iraq, but anywhere. Whereas, like, if a child uh, uh, is cut or ha- loses a limb or something like that due to uh, negligence or, or, or abuse, yeah. that is much easier to prove.
1: Yeah. But uh Just on reporting, I think there are two things that are actually happening now that they are bringing results for reporting. One thing is you report to someone adult in the community, a neighbor, a cousin, like an uncle or someone from Mm -hmm. the family who actually uh, reports to the social police or other uh, forms of uh, police.
0: What are the social police? Social (laughs) police? Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get into that.
1: For me, it's a very great uh, experiment. Uh, but it's still an experiment phase, which is which is something I'm not sure why hasn't been addressed yet. It's been years. There are a few reasons why the social police has been created. It's not actually part of the uh, Ministry of Internal um, Structure. It's been created to do a few things, and they don't have a law. Because they are not part of the structure, they don't have a law that governs what actually their accountability is, what they can do, and what is not in their responsibility.
0: So they, be, because they don't have any law, do they have any authority?
1: They don't have any authority. Okay. So what they do is referral. Of course, they are staffed by the Ministry of Interior and they have certain levels and like seniority levels. So definitely they have authority, but the structure by itself, not the people working for the structure, the structure by itself doesn't have authority, but they have um, time of reference. Mm-hmm. Like you do awareness around violent violence, awareness around the law, around, uh, around cyber bullying uh, or harassment. Mainly awareness. Second thing is people can report to you, and then you refer them to the right uh, party or to the to the, uh, to the right uh, system. Why is the social police uh, for me is a good experience uh, experiment? It's one is that way the Iraqi government was thinking at that time that people don't trust security actors anymore, and we want to create this division that bridge this gap that can because people don't trust going to the police. And it's not only because the police doesn't have resources or doesn't have the strong system because corruption and violation, that has been.
0: And on the other side, there's a system of shame with certain yeah. situations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which we'll get into in a second, but yeah. yeah.
1: But then they wanted people to, to, to connect with something that is social mm-hmm. and reachable on social media. They walk around the neighborhood. They don't have any weapons on them. Mm-hmm. You can talk to us. We can explain to you th- the law if you have something, and then we can refer you to the right people. For me, this is a good. This is a good uh, structure. But then, then the people who work within this structure, and I have talked to many of them, they always say it is like people come to me, and I can only refer them to information or to to someone. I cannot really do something. I don't have a legal uh, ground to like to stand on.
0: So the most accessible form of like uh, protection yeah. that you can access is someone who can literally do nothing for you.
1: No, exactly. Right. And then, then the resources are very minimal for them. Um, they ask for uh, support in order to do a social media campaign. or or, or they, Many of the people who work for social police are volunteers, actually. Mm. But for me, this is a good exercise. But but, anyways, what is happening now in, in Iraq, uh, as far as I know, but in Kurdistan, not so much, actually, to be honest. But in Iraq, people, uh, either a child reports to someone and then they reach uh, social police or on social media now. People just film each other. <laughs> a child being abused in the street, someone film them. Mm-hmm. Or the child goes live and talk about it. Like... Uh, so two years ago, I think, there was a child in Kirkuk, and it was a big story on social media. The child went on social media, and he said that the security on the gate of his camp have threatened him of rape and, and abuse to his, to his family also if he doesn't actually surrender to what they want. And because he spoke out of it, he was able to receive some aid. Uh, media talked about it. He met, I think, the governor so some children it's like they have the phone, they go on social media and talk about it, mm-hmm. or they tell someone. So at least there is some some progress, not in the right direction obviously. And right. like things should be still protecting the identity of the victim. Something is very important to a victim. That's not safe for children. Yeah. When it comes to children, their information is very important to be protected. So, going to social media, reporting through someone who is very active on social media, uh, there are spokespersons uh, for child rights work within Ministry of Interior or Social Police who actually expose this information to mm-hmm. the public. That's very dangerous and shouldn't be allowed. And not only dangerous, it's illegal. Mm. It's illegal uh, to ha- to happen. Anyways. Um, so a child probably gets reported. Then we come to the challenge that the law by itself is very weak. Do you know that the Iraqi law would only take a child away from their abusive parents if the child has been impacted in a level that they will cause them a permanent disability?
0: I did not know that.
1: So it's like if, if they are abused every day, but they, didn't have, they still don't have a disability, it's fine. You can keep your child. Once they have a disability, okay no, it's not allowed, we'll take them away.
0: Mm. Why does that why does that loophole exist?
1: It says so there is something that calls called is the the best interest of the child. Okay. And the best interest of the child is to stay within their family. Okay. Uh now, how abusive is the family? They have to cause the permanent disability in order for their abuse to be be acknowledged. Exactly. (laughs) Very disturbing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, a child could report multiple times, still fine.
0: Let's talk generally about the, the, the needs for boys versus girls. And before, again, before this interview, we actually talked about uh, 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 these children uh, that you worked with, in, with Save the Children, uh, who developed their own education program. And girls came up with a specific program. Uh, uh, and so, I actually, I'd like to start there. Could you tell me about what these girls developed? And then we can branch out into the, sort of the needs of boys versus girls here.
1: Yes, so there is this, uh, this project that you can anybody can experiment with is to learn how to design uh, a project centered on the best interest of a girl within a community. Mm. How to protect the best interest for a girl within a community, you learn how to do it. So we worked with children, we equipped them with this information And then we asked them to highlight the key issues for girls within their community. And then they have to find a way to address some of these issues. Uh, So interestingly, uh, there were two groups, boys and girls. The girls group was mainly around uh, online harassment and use of pictures and and for threatening girls. Then a group of boys talked about uh, harassment of girls within the community when they walk around. Um, and then the decision that is made by local authorities on where to put the play- playground, where to put the truck, uh, like road or like where the drivers stand, how is the community safe enough for a girl to walk from home to the shop to the to the to the school mm-hmm. without being exposed to harassment, right. uh, which was very interesting. Then also another group of girls were talking about early child marriage, and. Um, which wasn't actually received very well by uh, local authorities because...
0: What do you mean by local authorities?
1: Uh, someone from the government was attending the session. Okay. And and he talked to the girls and he told them, and I'm just telling this story here, okay? Okay. <laughs> that I still remember it because for me, the girls were very impressive in what they did. He told them, I understand that I respect your opinion that the that the, you wanna talk about child marriage, but it, it doesn't happen in Kurdistan. It's not an issue in ch- Kurdistan. And then they started telling stories like, my sister, my friend, my other friend, my cousin, she's already pregnant, she cannot go to school. She died uh, because of the pregnancy. The other day, uh, I got uh, the people asking for me, and then my father, they are thinking about it. They had examples, they had stories. Mm. Um. So that's also apparently an issue that girls are concerned about it. It's funny when people think child marriage, girls go for it. Maybe they are interested in marriage. And the economic situation, as we were talking also, in this country, not only in Iraq, but also in this region, has been impacted by COVID and the devaluation of Dinar. Low and middle uh, income families do struggle financially. Mm. And child marriage... Like accepted or not is a consequence from uh, it's like it's going to happen. Families do not trust that they can provide for their children, people, men, or like the family of a boy. They want the the man to work harder, so they just marry them, let them start a family, let them depend on themselves. Unfortunately, this is still happening, and. Uh, of course, I, wouldn't, I would expect that it's rising, and you can find numbers on child marriage starting to become actually a, a thing in Kurdistan.
0: Why is there such a discrepancy between... I mean, that anecdote is so concerning to me because I don't think that that official who was attending that event mm-hmm. meant that in, in bad faith. I think he genuinely probably believes that that's not a real issue. Why is there such a gap in knowledge from mm-hmm. public officials versus actual girls? about the topic of child marriage?
1: It's obviously you just based on your circle. Mm. If your circle are educated, they are employed, they have better resources, you don't hear of these stories. But for a girl in a school seeing her friends disappearing day after day, you would notice that this is happening. And and if you are from a simple community, people have to have daily wages, you've seen it. One story, personal story is I, I, I was, I grew up in Najaf, south of the country. Mm-hmm. And I studied in my high school in a certain school. And I think we were around 30 something in my class when I was in that school. 44 years after I returned to the same school as a teacher. There was only 11 girls in one class and the other class that I had to teach, I think there were seven only. They weren't sure they, they should be keep the class or they should close it. I, of course, one of the reasons that this happened within four years, only from 30-something to 11 or 7, mm-hmm. huge change in numbers. Of course, one reason is uh, the widespread of private education. Right. But the second reason is early marriage. I had two of the seven uh, girls that class. Two of them were pregnant. All but two weren't married. Okay. And there was one divorced one. Mm. Young girls. And I think one of the first questions, like getting to know each other, they asked me, like, are you married? Um, And then for me, that's was a moment in my life when I was like, I'm not going to work in the system because I wanted to be a teacher. I was like, no, I'm going to work on the system. (laughs) Mm. Because what is happening is that these families, of course, they started to... uh, not believe in the system that much, because not only because of quality and what can, it can offer, the whole country has shifted from being a um, socialist to a capitalist country, while people didn't know that and didn't recognize it. It's very political, I know, but then this is one thing that you grow up, up in a family that has certain values, certain expectation with the, from the government, while the government has different values and different expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and for children and their families, education doesn't really actually guarantee you a job anymore. Right. What's the point?
0: So uh, another point uh, of societal lack of acceptance and uh, and sort of willful ignorance uh, in the upper echelons of society, both in Kurdistan and Iraq, has to do with children of Daesh. Yeah. And for someone who might not have any idea of who these children are, could you help explain that?
1: Yes. So children affiliated with Daesh, they are children who is experienced Or is is not really been uh, like actually proven that one of their parents or both are ISIS fighters, Mm -hmm. um, either with the male or the female. So we call them children affiliated with ISIS uh, because you cannot call them something you are not sure of. Right. Um,
0: But the term on the street is children of Daesh.
1: Which is not really good thing to do or say. I'm speaking this way because exactly there is so much so much discrimination these children are exposed to. Many of them do still do not have their, their identification papers. Being someone who do not have identification, you cannot again, access government service. Mm-hmm. Uh, mobility. Mobility. Yeah, exactly. You cannot. There is lots of checkpoints in Iraq. Right. You cannot move around. Without these. And you
0: can't, because of that, you may not be able to access education. Yeah. And therefore later employment.
1: Health. Right. Like if in case of an emergency, you don't have identification, that's, that's very scary. But employment, most of these families who returned and then you want to build stability and you want these communities to go back to normal life most of these families are deprived from employment opportunities and being able to uh, open the shop that they used to have. So in many cases, like for example, the, fight, the father was or accused of being uh, a nicest fighter mm-hmm. who's been killed during the, the battles. The son wants to continue with the family work. They can't right. in many communities. So not only that they are Within their community and trapped and not being able to to move around, they don't they cannot actually make money to move around, try to move around to get the papers and or to to survive. Um, and then you have to also think as a child, children wants to connect with other children and mm. play grow. If they have that stigma, not only stigma, sometimes maybe they are scared and concerned for their lives because of that. So I, I haven't actually met many of these children and spoke to them. But I can imagine that it's mainly scary. It's very scary to, to be in a community knowing that you're not only deprived and neglected, but you also are concerned for your own safety and your family's safety.
0: And that fear can manifest in forms of radicalization later on.
1: Definitely. Which is something definitely. we need to consider
0: for the next generation. Yeah, Definitely. I want to touch on one point that's kind of related to this, but also child recruitment. Uh, And this is a specific point to KRI, to Kurdistan. We've talked a lot about both Iraq and Kurdistan uh, because you're an expert uh, Mm. on uh, Iraqi affairs. uh, But I'd I'd like to focus in on Kurdistan and child recruitment. If you could Mm. expand on um, some of the issues with uh, children entering into uh, military service here.
1: Yes. um, There are certain um, uh, armed groups... uh, Mm -hmm some are acknowledged and some are not, who actually do use children not only um, to fight, but then also using them to, again, clean, cook, any kind of uh, labor that you ask a child to do that is for a military reason. It does happen uh, in Kurdistan. I think the priority is, if you don't really actually have the legal legal ground for it, like you have a minimum age, what is the the what is the crime for doing that what is the what is what needs to happen in that case what awareness has to be taken in place in the first and who has to provide this if you don't have these, mm-hmm. this is a neglected serious issue serious neglected issue and for me it's disturbing like i think there is a, a paris uh, principle um, agreement that many arab countries haven't signed as interesting so do you have <laughs> on child recruitment for me it's like why is iraq not doing that mm-hmm. C- because then at least this is a one step that you show that you want to change things to the better i went to sinjar last year and for me it was very sin- interesting that on a school fence i saw drawings the only drawings on the school fence were about child recruitment mm-hmm. it's like children should go to school and not fight in sinjar so even if I'm not aware of the issue and what is happening, the community is aware. They know that this is happening within for their children. They are concerned about it. When I was with Save the children last year, they did a report on the Yazidi children trauma from the ISIS genocide of Yazidis. And one of the protection concerns for them was the commitment. I don't want to be taken and to fight. It should be a choice, but then again, <laughs> it shouldn't be a choice. It should be legally addressed. But then if you don't take actions to try to address it, activists cannot talk about it. These children cannot talk about it because they cannot rely on something.
0: Well, Noor, I I want to give you a quick minute to plug your own podcast uh, because we're doing a little podcast meetup right now. Uh, So to deviate from child recruitment (laughs) to uh, your own podcast project uh, to wrap things up, as as awkward as that is, uh, I'd just like to uh, uh, give you the chance to sort of platform yourself.
1: Yes, thank you. So, I've worked with Elena Travis, a journalist, a German British journalist on a podcast, Confused Iraqi Podcast, and a Confused Iraqi Podcast is the story of how I became a very confused person but also confusing, I think. It's a
0: great name. <laughs> yeah. It's better than Inside Kurdistan.
1: <laughs> no, it's good uh in in because because I feel like I'm always confused and I confuse people. People always tell me you confuse me with that so many things are happening Difference, change in ideas, and and what I'm saying, because I feel like most of that confusion has come from living in this context. By itself, is growing up post two thousand three as a child, be like uh, and what is happening it has confused me, and I wanted to share the story of how one person in Iraq has ex- been experiencing life since uh, Gulf War when I was born up to this moment and put it out there cuz i feel like iraqi stories are not that widespread or shared and it's it's sad for me not to see them out there uh i i when i travel i know people know of iraq and what happened to iraq but they don't know of iraqis and what happened to them and how they reflected on it so that podcast is just basically one story one on reflections we are t- telling events uh in their historical order, the way they happened, but then also giving the Iraqis perspective and my family and my experience during this period.
0: Well, you spoke excellently on child rights today. And so I would thoroughly recommend anyone listening to this interview to uh, please check out that podcast as well. Noor, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to Normosa for taking the time to come talk with me. Uh, we actually scheduled her to come in again along with another journalist, Alana Travers, uh, with whom she's developed the Confused Iraqi podcast that we talked about at the end of this interview. Uh, so that will be next week's episode, and I'd highly recommend listening to it. Uh, but there will be more on that soon, so stay tuned. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network. You can check out our podcast on KurdistanIn.net. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us at info at Thanks so much. I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan.